Well, happy Easter morning to each of you. This is an Easter like none other. I had a friend this past week that put it well. Uh, She said, I like that folks are experiencing what it means to be entombed for this season before they celebrate a freedom and a resurrection. And that's a good description of me. The past few weeks I've felt entombed. Uh, Sometimes I felt mummified, but I'm happy to report that the joy has returned this morning. I'm glad to be with you and celebrating the resurrection. We are really thankful that you've joined us online. I've actually been thinking about how life might be different after this season of distancing and staying at home is over. This past week, I did kind of an informal survey. I asked a number of people, what's one way that you would like your life to be different after this season is over? It might be in your routine or your schedule, your priorities, might be something internal, it might be relational. And I want to read you just a couple of the responses. One person said, minus the social distancing, I wish that life could always move this slow. That's not the case for everybody, but for many people, life is a lot slower now. He said, I wish life could always move this slow with less pressure. It's as if everyone has been given permission to take their foot off the gas. Now there's an idea. Another person said, one thing I'm kind of hoping for at the end of all this virus stuff is for us to emerge to a kinder world. I'd love to see people in solidarity with one another instead of all the divisiveness. As well, she said, some of the many things I'd like to be when this is over is more curious, especially when it comes to others' needs and suffering, more observant, particularly of delightful things, more grateful and humble. As I've thought about myself, probably the thing that I have missed the most is life-giving relationships. And so for myself, the thing I would like to, to have different is I would like to be more present, less passive, more active when it comes to the core relationships in my life. I want to be more present as a husband, as a dad, as a son, as a brother, as a friend, and as a pastor. And so I I hope you'll take some time to think about how you might want your life, just maybe one thing to be different once this season is over. But it begs the question, how do we actually experience a different type of life? Just wanting it to be different doesn't make it so. If you're like me, you've gone through a season or a a tough time or a, a powerful experience and you've thought, from this moment forward, my life will, will forever be changed. I will never be the same after this, only to realize that a week or two later, everything is the same. And so today we're going to talk about how we can have a, a different kind of life. And the commonality that, that everybody wants, people identify a different issue, but the thing everybody wants is a fullness of life, one of the, a satisfying, a lot, satisfying life, a quality of life. We don't want to just exist. We want to live, really live. And so today we're going to talk about how we can do that, how we can actually experience the quality of life that we all want. 
And given that this is Easter morning, you're probably not surprised when I tell you that the key to, to this quality of life involves understanding and believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ provides a quality of like life like none other for everyone who believes. And today we're going to look at a fascinating passage. It's in John 20. It's about a man named Thomas who initially did not believe the resurrection, but after he believed the resurrection, Jesus talked about the quality of life that he would experience, that all who believe would experience thereafter. And so if you find the idea that Jesus was raised bodily, literally from the dead to be too fantastic to believe, in other words, if you find it to be unbelievable, uh, you're in good company. Uh, that was Thomas. That was the, the, the reaction of everybody who was told Jesus has risen from the dead. And so we're first going to talk about the faith of Jesus' original followers, and then we'll talk about how a person today, over 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later, can have faith. And so we're in John 20. We begin in verse 19. And we have an example of faith in Jesus that was based on irrefutable evidence. Beginning in verse 19, we read that the evening that, that after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples. We find this. When, therefore, it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. It's significant that Jesus did not require his original disciples to take somebody else's word that he had been raised from the dead. He appeared to them and he gave them irrefutable evidence. He showed them the scars in his hands where he had been nailed to the cross. They showed him, he showed them his side, which is where he was pierced with the sword. That's how a Roman soldier would have confirmed that a person hanging on a cross was dead. The, the blood and the water poured out. And so uh, he showed them irrefutable evidence. And if you read the book of Acts, you see that, that they were unshakable in their faith that Jesus had been resurrected. Uh, even upon threat of death, they would never recant their faith in Jesus. But notice in verse 24 that Thomas was absent on this occasion. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, or the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe." If you read the gospel account, accounts, you'll see that, that uh, Thomas reacted the same way everybody else did. He thought it was too good to be true. And so he said, unless I, unless I see and touch the scars in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. 
And because Thomas made that statement, he has been dubbed unfairly, I think, but he's been dubbed Doubting Thomas. But the significant thing about Thomas is that he was willing to believe. He wasn't a person who says, I don't care how much evidence you show me, I'm never going to believe the resurrection. No, he was willing to believe. He, He said, if you show me, then I will believe. Mark Buchanan is one of my favorite authors, and, and he writes about an encounter he had with someone who, uh, who claimed to be a skeptic, and he relates this to Thomas. <clears throat> Buchanan writes, I met a man who told me he didn't believe the Bible because he was a skeptic, and I asked him if he had read the Bible. No, not really, he said. I told you I am a skeptic. I don't believe it. And Buchanan's comment was, this is not skepticism. This is its opposite. It's a refusal to investigate, to scrutinize, to ponder deeply. Skepticism is not an excuse for evasion, an alibi for laziness. Any skeptic worthy of the name is both a hunter and a detective, stalking the evidence, laying ambush, rummaging for clues, dredging the river bottom, wiretapping phone lines, setting traps. Skeptics are passionate about finding truth out. True skeptics want to believe, but they safeguard against the hypnotic power of that wanting. And so they test. And he says this about Thomas. Thomas was a true skeptic. He doubted not to excuse his unbelief, but to establish robust relief. He doubted so that his belief might be based on something more than, than rumor and wishful thinking. And so I love that because that's what I read. Thomas said, I'm willing to believe, but show me the evidence. See, and we see in verse 26 that Thomas got the evidence that he wanted. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside. It must have been a long eight days. But after eight days, the disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and so they must have still been fearful. And he stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And so apparently he miraculously appeared in their presence. And he gave them just the standard common Jewish greeting, shalom, peace be with you. And then he addresses Thomas, and it's clear from what he says that he knew exactly the evidence that Thomas had demanded. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. And so Jesus commands Thomas to believe based on the evidence. He said, see, touch my hands, my side. And believe. And apparently, Thomas needed only to see. We aren't told that he touched Jesus' wounds. Verse 28 Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And that confession indicates that Thomas believed. He, he had seen irrefutable evidence. How could he not believe? He said, Unless I see and touch, I won't believe. He saw and he believed. And so the resurrection was irrefutable evidence that validated everything Jesus had said and done. It validated his teaching. It validated the the purpose of his miracles. It validated that his death on the cross was a sacrifice 
for many, the resurrection validated that he was indeed the son of God. And Jesus' response to Thomas is, is striking. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? The answer to that question is yes. That's why Thomas believed. But then he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And so Jesus anticipates a day when people would believe without seeing him. Jesus would return to the Father. But uh, after that, people can't demand, unless I see and touch his scars, I won't believe. And so if you're sitting there in your, in your sweatpants in your living room, you can't, you can't demand unless Jesus appears here in my living room and I see his wounds and I touch his wounds, then I won't believe. Uh, no, that's not how we evaluate historical, historical events. And so what can we examine? What evidence do we have? Well, uh, interestingly enough, immediately after Jesus spoke of those who would believe without seeing John, the author of this gospel, addresses this very issue. And then he links that belief, that faith, that confidence to life quality of life we all want, an eternal kind of life. And so in verses 31, 30 and 31, he talks about faith in Jesus that is based on eyewitness testimony, the, the testimony of others who saw firsthand Jesus raised from the dead. In 30 and 31, John writes this, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There are many other miracles that due to space constraints were not recorded. But verse 31, he says, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, the stimulus for faith is now these, these eyewitness accounts in writings such as the Gospel of John. And so John wrote what he did so that his readers, including us, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one that was sent by God to remedy, uh, to, to be our savior, to remedy the problem of sin. The, the premise throughout the entire Bible, and it's, it's explicit many places, but it's implicit everywhere. The premise throughout the Bible is that we are all sinful. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin is this broad category that, talks, that, that basically means we have strayed from God and from his purposes. And you've probably noticed this. If you have kids, you've definitely noticed this. You don't have to teach people how to sin. Uh, we do it naturally. We sin by nature and by choice. And sin has had a couple of catastrophic, at least a couple of catastrophic consequences in the world. The first is relational. Uh, sin is poison for relationships. Uh, whereas God's design, his desire is that we be compassionate, we be humble, that we be generous to one another. Our tendency is to be selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered. Yeah, we'll help people out if it's, if it's convenient, but really we care about me and mine. And so this sin, when it's, when it's given free, free reign, it leads to hatred and oppression. It leads to, to everything that's toxic in the world, violence. And so the history of humanity is dominated 
by sinfulness that's embedded in individuals and in societies. And so sin has poisoned relationships with other people, but second, sin shows up in the way that we relate to God. Instead of being enamored with God and his ways, uh, sin makes us suspicious of God. Instead of moving toward God, we tend to move away from God and hide from him. Instead of thinking that God is the most intelligent, the most compassionate, the most uh, creative and beautiful being in the world, we tend to think, no, that's true of me. If I were God, I would do A, B, C, and D different. And sin, instead of looking up to God in wonder and awe, we tend to look down on God in contempt. And never, never was this more obvious than at the crucifixion of Jesus. When God showed up in the flesh, we crucified him. The great message of the book of John and of the entire New Testament is that the death and resurrection of Jesus are the remedy for that sin. When he hung on the cross, our sin was placed upon him. He bore the penalty that our sin deserved. Look again at verse 31. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so Jesus, or so John wrote this gospel so that people would come to the place where they believe, yes, Jesus died for my sins and he rose on the third day. And that believing that, they would have life in his name. Elsewhere, it's called eternal life. And eternal life doesn't primarily or, or, or only speak about how long this life is. It does talk about, it does refer to living with God for eternity. Since we're created in God's image, we are eternal beings. Everyone will live somewhere eternally. And yes, you put your faith in Christ, you'll live with God for eternity. Uh, But more than living forever with God after we die, eternal life denotes a quality of life that we experience here and now. And eternal life uh, gives us a capacity, it addresses these, these consequences of sin. And so first of all, we now relate to God properly. We relate to him as he's described in the scriptures. He's a good shepherd. He protects us. He nourishes us. He provides everything we need. He's a good father. He actually wants us. He's not annoyed that we're hanging around. He wants us and he trains us up. Uh, He is our refuge. And so when the storms come, like the season we're living in, these storms come, We have a place to hide. We have a place of safety. And so when we have eternal life, we relate to God properly. And then, by consequence, we progressively relate to one another properly. We progressively become the type of people that are compassionate and others-centered. We're humble and generous toward one another. And we treat each other the way God and Christ treated us. Not perfectly, but but progressively, we forgive one another. Uh, We care more about others' needs than our own. We're the type of people who sacrifice. We lay down our lives for one another. Because we're God's children, we bear the family resemblance. We increasingly look like God. We're, We're more like Jesus. 
And so this is the quality of life that we all long for. And we have a treat for you this morning. Uh, we're going we're gonna to share a uh, testimony of Shashika Pereira. Uh, we asked her to tell her story, and I think you'll find it fascinating. Take a look. Shashika Pereira, and uh, I'm my home country is Sri Lanka, and I'm a second year graduate student uh, studying for my PhD in chemistry at K State. I've been raised in a strong Buddhist background. Uh, together with some idol worshipping. I've been brought up in a background where I used to believe that uh, you get merits by doing good deeds. And if something wrong happens or something bad happens, that is due to the wrong you did in the previous life. My family uh, has experienced supernatural uh, powers uh, or experiences. Uh, due to idol worshipping. So that made me believe in the supernatural uh, powers and idol worshipping as well. As soon as I came to USA, uh, during my orientation period, I saw a dream. And in that dream, I uh, drive my father's Jeep, which I haven't driven before. And so I drive it uh, through gravel roads, uh, doubting that if I will be able to make it through these roads without any accident. But I do it nicely, I drive it smoothly, and on the way I get my mother into the vehicle. And then both of I drive myself and my mother through uh, an area where you have idols on either sides of the road. And surprisingly, and like, that is the amazing thing, we do not stop to worship the idols, we just pass through them. So I was a bit curious about this dream. Uh, so one day during the orientation week, uh, I told my friends, we hang out after lectures. So I just told my friends, I saw a dream. And then all of a sudden, one of my friends, Asanta, who was there, asked me if uh, I would like it to be interpreted. And then like, I don't believe in dreams at that time. So since I was curious, I just said, okay, go ahead. And then uh, his interpretation was that uh, this dream might be about my PhD journey because I'm just starting my PhD. And he mentioned that there can be a deeper spiritual meaning for that as well because uh, I was passing through uh, idols without stopping by. So now I got more curious. I wanted to know about this uh, deeper spiritual meaning that the dream was about. 